Hello and welcome. This is the famous, right, Ryan? World. <laughs> World famous. famous Killer Serials Podcast. I'm Tony Jones. I'm Ryan Parker. And we are so glad to have you along for the ride. We talk about awesome TV. Just a quick aside, what else are you watching right now? Oh, everybody out there in Everything. podcast land. Well, that's true. I am obsessed with Dark on Netflix. I Dark, am in yeah, love with I've, this I've heard about that. very complex, uh, sophisticated uh, German time travel drama that is just superbly acted. It's beautifully shot. Um, it could be a little convoluted at times, but, and you know, you really have, this is not a two screen experience. You, you cannot be on your phone. If like me, you don't want to have. Dub. So in other words, you're, so in other words, you're telling me my kids can't watch it. Exactly. Or if you're looking for a good family show where you're actually sitting down and watching something together and chatting about it, if oh, that's dude. a thing that people do, uh, <laughs> then it's that show because I think yeah. it's cool enough for like teenagers to watch it because it's it's really smart, it's and it just looks really good. But it's also it's like an adult Stranger Things without the upside down. Okay. It's good. I'm really into that. And then what we do in the shadows, the comedy on Hulu and just, you know, dabbling in other shows. Oh, Perry Mason on HBO. That's been getting great reviews. Mm. I love LA history. And so, mm -hmm. uh, old Hollywood and stuff like that. And that's just, it's just kind of, I mean, that's the world it takes place in. So yeah. what about you? Are you watching at least well, one other I, thing? I, mean, I, I was, I, I've been watching a couple of things, but you talking about, a, a one screen experience reminds me that it, it is even in the time of COVID when, it, when all three of my kids are home and there's just not much else going on, it is so supremely hard to get us all in the same room. Like I force we do cause we have a, a lake cabin in Northern Minnesota that we go up to. And so kind of like every other weekend we have those times together, which is nice. But here when we're at home, it's so hard. I did because it was my daughter's birthday last weekend. I did make her brothers join us for dinner and it was all five of us. And then we watched little miss sunshine. I mean, first of all, picking a movie that everybody likes is a terribly difficult affair. And then my daughter's like, dad, I cannot watch anything more than an hour. I mean, can we just pick a half hour show and watch one episode? And then can I go up to my room where she will then go upstairs and binge, you know, multiple episodes of whatever show she's watching. And I'm like, my gosh, we're going to watch a freaking movie. We're going to watch a freaking movie. And so yeah, <laughs> then her older brother's like, Anything by Christopher Nolan? <laughs> no, I don't think your sister. <laughs> I don't think your sister wants to do that. Yeah, <laughs> let's watch some three and a half hour blockbuster with tons of violence. No, so then I'm, I'm. He's like Wes Anderson. I'm like, how about Wes Anderson? Like, so we ended up with um, Little Miss Sunshine, which Courtney and I had seen. None of the kids had seen it. I made them put their phones down. I said, you cannot 
check your phone for an entire. It's the movie's like an hour and a half. You know, at yeah. one point, my older son did get up. He's like, I I need to uh, get some water, and he went to the kitchen, and I know he checked his phone. Oh, you're s- like, he's sneaky, sneaky. Oh yeah, and then my other son's like, I gotta go to the bathroom, and he was up there, and I know he was on his phone, so I texted him, like, get your ass down here now all caps and then all of a sudden i hear the toilet flush and he comes back down <laughs> they admitted they did, grudgingly did they, admitted to like the liking the movie i was gonna ask you well, how did they respond to the film did it's it a age great well? movie man it's in such the a age great... of yeah it well, is and here's the one thing i had going for me is that they love the office and they've watched all the way through the like each of those kids of course never together never together I'm convinced, Ryan. No, why would you? Why would you? I, I'm, Ryan, I'm convinced that my kids, when they are my age, they will not have like a TV in the living room. There will not be a centralized television screen that they use communally. I believe it. They have yeah, all said I believe to me, it. why would I ever watch a show with someone else? Why would I ever watch a show with someone else? It's- and. It's. I but, think it's tragic. Well, it. It. I think so. And, and not to sound like the get off our lawn people, but I do agree with you. I do think it's tragic. But also, I've been. I've been mindful even just the start of this conversation about a book I teach or use in my teaching called "It's Complicated: The Social Lives of Network mm-hmm. Teens" by Dana Boyd. Which, when I when I largely teach older second career ministerial students. They're just blown away by it because she frames teens' use of screens and social media in social ways that I think COVID is only enhancing and these quarantines. So I wonder if you've had conversations with your kids about that because you're fairly hip dad. You know, you're, yeah. you're, yeah. you're fairly with it. And like I, I feel like you're somebody that could converse with your teens without dismissing things that they like that you don't like. But... You know, they use it's clear that teens hang out on in social media spaces the way, you know, my parents hung out at the, you know, hamburger stand or whatever, whatever yeah, those places yeah, were, yeah. the mall. Soda, f- the soda fountain, the soda. F- yeah. Do you talk to your have you talked to your kids about do, the way they're using social media now? And guess, in what, quarantine? And guess what? They, guess what feedback? they say to me? You're yeah. the get off my lawn guy. That's oh, what so they you, say. That's the vibe oh, you're yeah. giving your oh, kids. Oh, yeah. No, they're, no, it's not the vibe I'm giving my kids. <laughs> it's like, that's their cop-out. That's how they get out of this conversation. They're like, you did stuff your parents didn't like, too. Like, your parents didn't like that you had a boombox in your room and you were, like, making cassette did you have tape a boom recordings were you making, off, off were the you radio. Making, yeah. Were you I was recording mixtapes off the radio. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. you know they're like you. Your parents didn't like stuff you did, and now you don't like stuff we did. And I, I, I'm, I try to make the case this is fundamentally different. This is not Elvis swiveling his hips, you know. And and my oldest son, <laughs> he he will say like, he's he's well read enough to be able to say, I know all the guys, all those tech guys who, uh, designed Facebook and Twitter don't let their own children use them. And that they were the same people who had like designed um, slot machines in Vegas. You know, they're they're designed in such a way to keep you using them because it's an endorphin release when you scroll or when you see the red notification button uh, uh, lit up or whatever. So they even they can even articulate the problem 
but it's not enough to get them to put it down and say, I'm going to read a book or I'm going to well, watch that's a movie. When you know because, you've got a super severe problem when they know it and they're still not doing anything. Yeah, because Ryan, change. it's, it's, I mean, I, you probably have it in your own life. It is difficult to put down the device and read a book at these days. It's so much yeah. easier, mentally easier. And to, on top just of like, your, just like my mom of, used to c- criticize my dad of like every night you just sit in front of the TV and veg out with your Jack Daniels. And, you know, my mom would be in her room reading her book for book club or whatever. Um, so it is. Yeah, and on top uh, of and on yeah. top of that, um, the, the design, too, I know we're going a little far afield here, but I think it's it's important. And I think it's relevant to the kind of larger conversation we have about television. Not only are these devices and these modes of communication designed to draw us in, it promotes the worst of us through its platform because that's the uh, what's the what's the correlation for every negative thing said to somebody? There has to be like yeah. a dozen positive reinforcements right. to outdo that. Well, social media feeds off the negativity. So heaven forbid you, and listen, there's a lot wrong in the world right now, a whole lot. But if you stay off of, I'm convinced that if the longer you stay off of that, the happier you'll be. And I don't think that means you have to be uh, blind to the suffering in the world either. Yeah. If I say to my, if I say to my daughter, you know, uh, every study shows that you're on social media and it lowers your self-image, especially as a girl, because all your girlfriends are posting their cutest photos and whatever. And she's like, oh, yeah, Dad, I know all that, so it doesn't affect me. <laughs> it's like, wow. oh, my God. What do you think? Um, what do you think this generation will be like when they're when they were or are your dad's age, like sitting in the recliner with their Jack Daniels and Facebook? Or whatever is the next platform. I I think I think there will be some kind of a reckoning, and I think there's going to be a backlash to social media. I think I really do. I think I think there's going to be a backlash, and I think people are going to realize how destructive it is. Um, it's interesting, for instance, the rise of podcasting because podcasting is basically a, a kind of a, a social media enabled form of long form communication and long form conversation with no visuals. And it's incredible that uh, people have so gotten into podcasting, I think. And it, 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 I, I find that a good, a a happy sign. So, uh, you know, to, to answer your question, the one other thing that I watch Courtney and I, many nights before we go upstairs to read after dinner, we clean up, the kitchen and then we sit down with a glass of wine and we will watch an episode of queer eye you know many nights that's what we'll watch if we're both home and and beauty will save the world and that's my transition into talking about rectify 206 mazel tov hey way to way to is is beauty will redeem leslie says right beauty will redeem the world no, Leslie and, doesn't say that. Oh, Charlie, Charlie the chaplain. The chaplain. Charlie the, sorry, yeah. my bad, my bad. Yeah. Beauty will redeem the world. And and I find, although it's formulaic and highly, highly edited and produced, uh, I think Queer Eye is a little bit of beauty. 
And uh, oh, it's a I, lot of I, beauty. I, I yeah. love it. So a- let's talk about Charlie the Chaplin. Uh, we're on Rectify 206. Good place to start. Thank, thank you, listeners, for sitting through a dozen minutes of us um, talking about something other than Rectify for a minute. But, but also, um, also something that everybody's dealing with in one way or the other, thinking about, you know, so not completely yeah. out of yeah. left field. Well, there's yeah. some fun so Charlie, stuff in this episode. I like, it's, it's, I like it's Charlie. It's a very well-written episode, and it, it, it intriguing... Uh, intriguing little characters like Leslie and Charlie the Chaplin. So, Ryan, tell me your thoughts about Charlie the Chaplin. Well, it's clear to me that this character has been created by, forged by a team who has a deep understanding of faith, who want to approach this with some respect and insight. Because, as you know, oftentimes depictions of religious professionals, characters in series, films, is just so off, disrespectful, um, satirical, you know, just not 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 helpful to the story um, yeah. in many cases. And, it, and I think it is here. And it reminded me of a chaplain in this great film that I've mentioned before on this podcast well, while talking about this series called Clemency. And I think he articulates and embodies the power of presence. And I think when I was watching it, I was feeling convicted about my own callousness about suffering and, you know, thinking of Jesus's teaching and, and, the, and the very provocative questions of, you know, when did you see me hungry and, you know, in prison? Mm-hmm. And I think, these prison chaplains are doing are, you know, it's quite literally doing the Lord's work. And oftentimes it may just look like sitting there because when you're in solitary confinement and you're on death row, even a, even a silent companion uh, is life giving. I don't know if that's too trite to say, but I hope he's a recurring character because I would love to see the conversations between him and Daniel. And we don't get a lot of that in this episode. I think he's just trying to, Charlie, if he will be a recurring character, at least in this moment, is just trying to faithfully introduce himself to to Daniel. And I think to show more what he's not uh, than what he is. Yeah. You know, um, when I saw him, I immediately thought of Steve Earle uh, in The Wire playing. He's he's kind of like, not only does he sing. That's right. uh, not only does he, but he's he's like an he, he sings the theme song, but he's also an AA sponsor. And yeah, I, I've always thought Steve Earle's acting was a bit subpar in The Wire, but he kind of makes up for it just in the fact that it's Steve Earle, and you know the dude yeah. is like absolutely been through the ringer himself. You can just see yeah. it in his face. And yeah. w- when I saw this, you know, um this actor Matthew Posey he walks in he's got that he just it's perfectly cast I think like you say it, I it really shows a sensitivity from you know the the from Ray McKinnon and the rest of the people in charge of creating and casting 
this show that they kind of he, he just looks exactly like a prison chaplain he's a little bit frumpy and he's kind of been through the ringer himself he, he's he's got the huge pectoral cross hanging around his neck you know in the flannel yeah. shirt or whatever yeah and he's completely at peace with himself this is what i thought was so interesting you know he's he in that way he is like leslie he he's not he, d- Daniel is at this point in the flashback sequence of the prison. Daniel is obviously heavily drugged out after banging his head against the wall, and you know the the orderly or whatever it was in in the prison infirmary encouraging him to ask for basically some kind of a sedative or, or something like that, and he's heavily on it. And he doesn't seem all himself. And the chaplain, you know, it's one of those things where he basically says, I'm happy just sitting out. I'll just be out here if you want to talk. And I mean, I've, I I was a police chaplain for 10 years, very different kind of chaplaincy. But I thought, oh, could I sit there in, in silence, <laughs> like in, on death row, just sit out there? Tony, I love no. your comment about him being at peace with himself because it just makes me reflect back on different characters, maybe even different types of faith people in real life whose need to convert or need to make you believe the way they believe may stem from a deep insecurity about their own identity or their own place in that world. And, you know, early on, Yeah. You don't get that, right? With with uh, if Charlie. I may, if I may, let's let's drop all the the characters in this episode into one of two buckets. Daniel is clearly not at peace with himself. Amantha is not at peace with herself. Janet is. Tawny is not. Teddy Jr. is not. John Stern is. Ted, Ted Senior suddenly is. Suddenly <laughs> is right. A good good Jared, transition because yeah, yeah, Jared's Jared is Leslie is Senator uh, Folks is not Sheriff Carl. What about I Sheriff think, Carl? I think is Trey Willis. Oh, he's not. <laughs> he's not. Yeah. He floated his dead body his his dead buddy's suicidal body down the river. You know. Yeah. Um. So it's. I just found that an interesting. Uh, interesting thing. Now, that's a great you know, way to characterize and kind of analyze this show from a character yeah, perspective. Yeah, well, now, uh, good. what do you I think, think of? We see Ted, we, okay, a really well acted, well written, and super awkward scene in the kitchen during the birthday party when Daniel and Leslie reveal the stove, which is Daniel's present to his mother. A terribly awkward scene that Ted Sr. has a bit of a transition in the scene. What did you think of that? Well, he saves it. I mean, he saves Daniel in a way because, first off, I think the move to have Daniel uh, hunt for, uh, along with Leslie, this, uh, this antique stove that his mother made an offhand comment about, he has taken it to heart. And he is active and he's moving. He's been so passive 
this whole series really uh, and reflective, understandably so. But he's re- really making an effort here in his own way to connect, I think. And if this scene goes another way, I think it is something that sends Daniel further down his down the hole of his existential crisis. But Ted steps up and says, we can, you know, because the, the reaction from everybody else in the room is oh, one my shock gosh, or yeah. embarrassment yeah. or belittlement, you know, Teddy Jr. It's, it's like Daniel suddenly asshole. on the edge of a cliff and anybody in that room could push him off. And Ted, by and just Ted saying Saban. like, what a stupid gift. Yep. And Ted and other people, you know, John Stern says what a thoughtful gift it is. And look, we're probably aware, you know, we know that that Daniel's probably aware that it hasn't landed the way he thought it would. But there, I think, is a clear sense that Ted Sr.'s affirmation of the gift, his willingness to make space for it straight away helps. I mean, I think it, I think it yeah. helped Daniel on his way to rebuilding the connections that he has with, with his family. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. It could have, the other way it could have gone would have, I think been devastating for him emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. There's, uh, another little interesting, um, moment. Uh, I mean, I, I thought it was a kind of a beautiful small town, uh, scene where John Stern and Amantha are roller skating and it's very cute. And yep. then they're outside making out like high school kids. You know, there's a, it, there's just a little bit of a young love and mm-hmm. they're, you know, but both somewhat desperate, lonely characters clinging to one another. It seems like John Stern's about to leave for his new job in Boston. Again, he's kind of like, you don't have to, you know, we don't have to be apart. It, and then this woman comes up, which I found a little less than convincing that this woman oh, would come up and, I don't. and excoriate <laughs> I it. Amantha for a kissing, kissing in a parking lot. I found it completely believable. And I was going to say to you, okay. I'm glad you brought it up because I feel like it, it captures the best and worst of life in small Southern town. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Well, but I no, mean, go she ahead. really, Sorry, has, I just, she, well, that was just no, my take. I, I, she really has some gumption to, you know, go up. They're just making out in the parking lot, like high school kids. And she goes up and scolds them for that. But, but John, it, it, the scene is a vehicle for John Stern to say, you know, you really got to leave us alone. Like, what do you, do you just listen to what your parents said? You were five years old at the time. And then he says, good night and good luck, which is a funny, like a funny little trivia Edward R. Murrow throw in. Yeah. Well, I think it's Amantha. I think the, the opportunity for Amantha in this scene to breathe a little bit, to find some joy in the moment with John making out with John, because I think we see clearly in this episode, we're told, in fact, something that, that we've kind of hinted at. We talked to Scott teams about a little bit, you know, Amantha's just exhausted because she's, she's worked so hard fighting for her brother. And there's that, that fantastic exchange between the chaplain and Daniel when Daniel, the chaplain asks him, are you ready to die or do you want to die? And Daniel and his drugged haze says, my sister won't let me. And a real 
clear indicator that she has been his champion. And I think it's taken its toll on her. And we've, we've been, you know, especially you, Tony, have been critical of her, but uh, she's also trying to find her way. She's negotiating this new job and John's moving potentially. And so this was just such a sweet moment to see her laugh and have some sort of release. And then all of a sudden it's put under the microscope yet again by this, uh, small town resident. Well, speaking of small town residents, I do want to talk a little bit about Leslie because I I think this is Leslie's last appearance. It is. I I I'm gonna say that Leslie is an oracle or a guru to Daniel. Um, not unlike uh, you know, you think of there's the guru or the oracle, whether it's in the Matrix. Uh, or other types of movies or films. There's, it's a somewhat common type of character dating all the way back to uh, ancient Greek drama literature. But a, a couple different things that Leslie says that I thought we could chat about. One that's interesting is Daniel, there's this little back and forth between Daniel and Leslie. Daniel says, I don't know what to do. Leslie says, that's because you're stuck, Daniel. Surprised you ain't dead. You're full of shit, Leslie. To which Leslie says, at least I'm okay with it. You okay with what you are? Back to that earlier theme I brought up about just being comfortable with himself. Leslie is a Leslie is a weird, fringy character in the Deep South. But he's okay with that. He's not... You referred last episode maybe to S-Town which is another story of a weird fringy character in the South. And there's a history of weird fringy characters in the South. Some of them aren't okay with being on the fringe. Leslie clearly is. And he's challenging Daniel for Daniel, obviously not being okay with who he is. Uh, I I thought that was interesting. And then there's one other back and forth in which Leslie says, I believe forces brought you out to my establishment in search of a stove for your mama's birthday. Same forces will tell you where to go next if you listen. And Daniel yeah. says, sometimes it's hard to hear. And Leslie says, yeah, well, we usually hear better when we're in pain. But damn, if you ain't got a high threshold, see you around the fringes, buddy. And I know that fringes, you know, Daniel is going to be a, a, a fringe person the rest of his life based on his murder conviction but i'm more interested i guess in leslie's belief in some kind of higher power or transcendence that that there is some force larger than daniel that is moving daniel that daniel can't quite hear yet but that leslie as his oracle is telling him to listen for and that you can listen for that force that's moving you when you're in pain. What did you make of of Leslie referring to that higher power? Yeah, I have to be honest with you. It didn't strike me as much as one other thing that he said, which I'll get to in a minute. But I love this take on this character that you have. Uh, there's such a, and this may be true of all places in one way or another. I think it may take on a unique flair in the South, but 
there's such a performativity to Southern culture where uh, around femininity, masculinity, religion, and, and all these things. And so when you meet somebody like a Leslie, who we, you know, we talked more in depth last week about that kind of fringy culture, there is an authenticity to it that I think enables you to hear or enables that person to hear a different frequency. Maybe when you're not obsessed with how you look or what you have uh, and you're, you're possibly listening to what really matters and you, maybe you call that God or maybe you call that a spirit, but being attuned to it, it feels like to me, you have to be at some form of peace. Maybe it speaks to you in pain, but some sort of acceptance of who you are and where you are. And that's, I think, what Daniel's really struggling with. So I really like this idea. I mean, he comes along at a very crucial time because he, I think he unknowingly tells, and maybe he knows what just happened, but he tells Daniel something too. Um, it gives him a piece of advice and he says, look behind you. When Daniel expresses this confusion about where to go or how to move forward. And he says, look behind you. Well, earlier in the day, he had gone to the funeral, Rutherford Gaines's funeral. And in a shocking moment, I mean, I really didn't see this coming. He stands up and moves to the front of the gathering and offers a reflection on this man's life, which is extremely beautiful. And I think we want to play one, one segment of it here. Um, and, and Tony will come back and see what what you have to say about that, but he's in this process of looking back in a way. Um, and then there's an element that, the, and we'll talk about this after the, after the clip, the, the whole episode concludes with him looking back and, and another drug fueled moment, but let's listen to what Daniel has to say at Rutherford's funeral. Well, I'm not sure if it's appropriate for, for me to say something or not. The irony of it doesn't escape me, of course. Anyway, uh, Mr. Gaines used to send me books when I was away. Three books on the French Revolution alone. He liked revolutions, I guess, especially failed ones. I discovered a theme running through those books that men will see what they want to see and believe what they want to believe and fight to the death for those beliefs, no matter how misguided or hopeless. Oftentimes I would dream on these events of the crowds taking the streets, taking the squares, and the contagion of menace and fear, and mercy be damned. And occasionally I would, I would see Mr. Gaines away from the crowd catch his eye and understand just how difficult it is for two people to come together in the face of such intoxicating lunacy. Truth is, I didn't know Mr. Gaines. Not really. His notes that accompanied the books were never personal. They just talked of the subject matter at hand. First, I didn't care if he sent them or not. But I read them. And he kept sending them. 
19 years. Like I said, I, I don't know why I'm here exactly. I suppose it's not reason that I dressed up for him because on more than one occasion, he dressed up for me. Thank you. You know, Ryan, I, I thought that too, that, that spontaneous eulogy that Daniel gives at the funeral was so fascinating to me. First of all, I thought it was extraordinarily well-written because it showed such nuance, almost to the point that it stretched my imagination whether Daniel could authentically say this. Like It, it, it just shows a, a, a kind of a, a self-awareness that Daniel doesn't often have in how he talks about how his his defense attorney didn't actually show him any compassion or intimacy like i didn't really know the man he re- never wrote anything personal in these notes but he kept sending me books and then he would write about the books in in the uh you know in the note that he enclosed in the book including three books on the french revolution and <laughs> then he, daniel basically uses the idea of the French Revolution to uh, implicate everybody in the crowd who thinks that he's guilty of murder. <laughs> you know, it's so, so good. It, it's it's just great, brilliant writing. And I'd like to. Uh, I obviously, you know, Daniel's a super intelligent person who who absorbed everything that he read in prison. Yeah, I thought that was really, really a great scene. That. It was lost on everybody in the crowd, in the congregation. Yeah, and just thinking about, again, that act of Rutherford sending books as presence, right? The power of presence in Daniel's yeah. life uh, as, a, as a ministerial witness, so to speak. I, I just thought that was, was such a nice touch. I know we're getting later here in the, in the podcast, but I think there are, two, there are two. One quick thing that I think we can just address and move on is and, and come back to Daniel and this idea of looking back is Teddy Jr. If Ted Sr. rises to the occasion, Teddy Jr. is just sinking to new lows in this episode. Feels yeah. Like. I mean, Ted Teddy is so... Uh, he has such a lack of self-worth, of his own self-worth, you know? And he's married to somebody who obviously struggles with her own self-worth. But they it's funny, they carry... They, they both have great weakness but they really carry it so differently, don't they? Um, Tawny yeah. is yeah. easily intimidated, unsure of herself. You know, maybe I should go to college, you know, this kind of thing. And Teddy, Teddy's lack of self-worth comes out in uh, arrogance, sarcasm. Anger. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, he, he doesn't even know the conversations that are taking place between Daniel and Tawny. And this is, it's been many episodes since we've had interaction between Daniel and Tawny, which was so much of the foundation of the first season. And he's simply thanking her. It's almost like they're checking in on each other. And again, it's this act of kind of looking back even momentarily briefly here in the kitchen. And he's thanking Tawny for basically being there for him again, another act of a practice of presence where 
and and she talked about how she says that spiritual feeling of emotion and connecting with someone is what it means to be human and that it deepens us. And he think and he says, well, I was deepened and he thanks her for that. And it's so it's, it's innocent. There was that moment yeah. of, you know, they wanted to kiss or whatever. And that's obviously what sent Teddy jr. Set Teddy jr. Off, but there's a Supreme sweetness, deep uh, emotional connection here in a, in a, in a completely non-sexual way. And of course, all, Teddy Jr. sees is Daniel smiling at Tawny and it just sets him off. And we'll, yeah, you and, know, they talk leads, about ripples, right? Yeah. The aftershocks that we'll see those in the next episode, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, what's, you know, and, and his response to that is to totally betray his wife. Yeah. And announce their pregnancy in front Which of everybody get, else. To me, that is to me of the things that Teddy has done is the it's the worst because you get one shot at that, right? Like they're never, Tawny's never going to have that opportunity again. And it's clear that this is her family, her, she, she's, we don't, we don't know anything about her parents or her step parents or adopted parents or whatever that situation was. And he's stolen that from her. Well, think of it this way, even think of it this way. It's the first time the entire family has been gathered in one space since Daniel. That uh, welcome home barbecue, right? Well, since Daniel was beaten at the end of season one. Oh, that's right. That's right. When they're all together and, um, you know, they've just gotten the news that he's been beaten and he's in, and he's in the hospital. So they're finally all gathered back together again for this Thanks celebration and Teddy, yeah, steals the spotlight out of his own insecurity because he actually thinks that Tawny has feelings for Daniel. Which I mean, who knows? As as the episodes unroll, maybe Tawny and Daniel will end up hooking up. You know, I don't know. Um, yeah. Speaking of hooking up, Daniel does hook up. At, <laughs> after wow! Leslie Clark, what he, a he shocker. Up. He wakes up with the, the senator's uh, mistress. mistress. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which wow, is a funny twist. Wait till he funny wait, twist. Speaking speaking of jealousy and anger and not being comfortable with your you own identity. Wait till wait till the now. senator finds you. That's right. Yeah. Hey, before oh, we go, maybe. I want to talk about the ending. Let's end with the ending. I loved yeah. it. I love a lot of these mysterious, haunting final scenes and and many of these episodes that I think characterize the series so far. And in this one, and and perhaps uh, heeding Leslie's advice, Daniel goes out to the river, right to the to the yeah. site of Hannah's death, and he eats some mushrooms. Tony, I've got a theory, um, and and it and it ends. He he hears her voice, and right. I'm wondering. Obviously, this whole thing is about the relationship. Well, and let's and, not forget. Uh, let's not forget that he early at the very beginning of the episode he asked his younger brother if he knew where his walkman was and that's where we've heard her voice before is that jared has found daniel's old walkman and mixtapes that hannah made for him so she's uh, uh, there's her voice Uh, and and daniel by asking for that walkman is obviously showing some longing for wanting to put those headphones on and listen to hannah's voice again 
Yeah. And I, I love that. And I, I love how this series is one of the biggest themes that we really haven't talked. We've kind of touched on a little bit, but it's this, this notion of the past and the present, the present's relationship to the past. And, you know, you think about Southern lit and you think about Southern culture and the sins of the past and, and the present uh, for that matter. But, you know, you talk about this, that throwaway Faulkner line, right? The past isn't dead. It's not even past. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's still with us and it's still with Daniel. And, but this whole act of looking back, you know, the senator doesn't want to do it. The sheriff doesn't want to do it. They want to just close this case and move on. And I think this act of looking back is going to allow us as the audience, it allows the characters themselves to learn who they truly are obviously to learn what happened as we try to unravel if there is a mystery behind what happened that night, if we ever get to learn what happened. But I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've never taken mushrooms, uh, honest to God, I've never taken mushrooms. It, it, the, the idea of tripping scares me, but I've talked to a lot of people who have, and, and heard a lot of people speak fairly in depth and intellectually about that process. And, uh, I've, I, I joked with Amy once. I had read this wonderful book about called The Understory, which is uh, a lot about forests and mushrooms. Overstory. And grass, the Overstory. The, the Overstory. Yeah, sorry. The Overstory. Because yeah, yeah. I, yep. I recommended yep. it to you. Sorry. Yep. I'd read this yep. Overstory, and it talks a lot about the connectedness of trees and yes. fungi and grass. And people talk about taking mushrooms and feeling connected to something yep. larger and having this experience outside of themselves. And who knows, maybe that is part of a relate part related to that, right? That these are beings that when they're alive are connected to a much, much larger ecosystem than their tiny selves. And, you know, Daniel takes these and goes back to this location and he, yes, he's been longing to hear her voice, it seems like, but... Mm -hmm. That that's what he hears, and and there's something still potentially in that place that, uh, well, it certainly has to be reckoned with. I mean, there's was an injustice potentially done to Daniel, but there's also something that's still not settled from that past that is calling to him. I think calling to the town, but he 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 you know takes these mushrooms and he has this experience. I just love that ending. I thought it was such a interesting, compelling uh, way to to wrap that up, wrap that episode up. Yeah. It's funny. I I had the exact same thought when I saw him doing that as I thought, um, I've never taken mushrooms. I wonder, I wonder what that's like. And then he takes the second one. And I'm like, dude, don't take too many mushrooms. <laughs> I'm worried. I'm Imp- worried for him. Control. You know, like I, yeah. I don't want him to overdose. Yeah. yeah. He, he has a tent. Yeah. He has a problem with impulse control, but it, I agree. It, it was, it was a fascinating way to end the episode and uh and then also the episode ends with the the music over the closing credits is hang down your head tom dooley which is about yeah someone being um you know an old folk song that's about a man who murdered his fiance and who's uh given a trial and then convicted again deep um a steep it, knowledge on the folk music oh i'm a big fan of the hang down your head tom dooley yeah old kingston trio tune but it's a based on a true story so 
yeah, I mean, I just, again, we keep like throwing Ray McKinnon uh, bouquet after bouquet every episode of this podcast, but it's really, I just think it's such an outstanding show. And um, I hope, you know, people who are watching along with us are enjoying it as much as we are. Tony, this this episode is so packed. I don't, I don't want to drag this on too much longer, but this episode is so packed with narrative goodness that we haven't even discussed another shocking scene. And I wonder if you can guess which one I'm talking about. Are you going to quiz me? Speaking what of the past. It? No, what is it? Speaking of the past. What is it? It's uh, when Daniel's gassing up his car. And who does he see at the gas station? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. He sees Trey Willis. Yep. Yep. A, as, yep. That's another about great a million one. Ways I thought that the, I, yeah. I thought the way Trey played it looks like weather's coming, you know, or whatever. It's uh man. It, I, it's here's what I thought up. during that scene. I thought Trey Willis has run this scenario through his mind a million times. What's going to happen when I bump into Daniel in town? So Trey, it wasn't like the first time. I mean, it was the first time they'd seen each other in real life. But in in Trey's mind, I got the impression like this has happened a thousand oh, times, gosh. and and his and his pulse doesn't even tick up a beat. He plays because he's like, I know exactly what I'm going to do when I see Daniel. I'm just going to play it off like nothing to happen, which is what he does. And anyway, I thought, yeah, another great great little scene. So I. Kudos, kudos to the actors, writers, showrunner, and everybody. It's great stuff. Yeah. And I really um, can't wait. I hope people for next week. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. A little bit longer episode because we had a bit of a, a rabbit hole at the beginning. Hope you appreciated it. <laughs> we really appreciate your support and hope you're enjoying Rectify as much as we are. Hey, everybody. Mazel tov. <laughs>